Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. It's Natalie Dalzicki from Pop and Lock. And I'm Landry Ayers. Today, our show is going full on exotic. Joe Exotic, the self-proclaimed gun-toting cowboy who is the focus of Netflix's newest documentary, Tiger King. Joe Exotic, Carol Baskin, Doc Antle, and the rest of the crew don't just favor cats over dogs, they love their big cats, which creates quite the drama-filled goldmine. To discuss that drama today with us is Libertarianism.org's assistant editor for tech and innovation and host of the podcast Building Tomorrow, Paul Matsko. Rawr. I mean, hi. And a staff writer at the Cato Institute, Andy Craig. Howdy, howdy. Paul, Andy, is Joe Exotic a good example of a libertarian? (laughs) Well, I mean, he did run for the libertarian uh, slot for to be governor of – to be governor of his state. I mean, so if if he's not a libertarian, I mean, who is? Um, We can talk, though, about whether or not he has any kind of meaningful principled commitment to uh, individual liberty or if it was all just an attempt at uh, uh, bringing media attention to his exotic zoo. Yeah, I think that's uh, largely right. Uh, There's a scene where Joshua Dial, his campaign manager, um, who was a Libertarian Party guy, comments that, you know, Joe Exotic has no idea what a Libertarian is, and he still doesn't. Um, I was kind of in the interesting position because I uh, worked on Gary Johnson's campaign. I know a lot of Libertarian Party people. Uh, I actually had heard of Joe Exotic before Tiger King came out, and I followed a little bit the drama uh, when he was seeking the uh, LP Oklahoma governor nomination. And uh, they show this in the show. They don't, they don't make it super clear this is what happened. He ended up placing third out of three candidates. Um, so, yeah, the Libertarian Party was not super thrilled with them. And that was one of the – it was kind of fun to see uh, Libertarians portrayed as the relatively normal people, um, <laughs> which is something that, that happened in this show. Um, Josh Dial, uh, Joshua Dial was definitely one of the more sympathetic, normal-seeming characters uh, in the whole show. Um, but yeah, there is certainly a strain of, we love weird Americana. We love individualism and Joe exotic is certainly hyper individualistic. Um, and so that's not quite the same as libertarian, but you can see where the overlap comes in. I mean, we are talking about the party that had a naked man run for the presidential nomination in 2016, or vice presidential nomination. Um, uh, he was running for chair, but yeah. For yes. chair, okay. <laughs> yeah. All I remember is there's a guy who stripped on the stage at the at the LP convention. So it, uh, there is a certain degree to which the Libertarian Party tends to attract um, the more unusual among us. But I mean, that's, that's going to be true of any kind of third party. Um, and and again, I mean, I think I think your point, Andy, is well put, which is that he lost, and he lost handily against two. I mean, he he got third out of three out third out of three, and um, we're not talking about a huge number of voters, given you know the number of libertarians in a single state who came out to vote in a primary contest is not in, huge in Oklahoma, nonetheless. In, Oklahoma, in Oklahoma, in a relatively thinly populated state. I mean, if you're going to get some kind of weird outcome, a kind of outlier winning a party nomination, that's the kind of situation where he would have had, should have had a serious shot just through, you know, uh, his personal like star power or his willingness to say outrageous things to get media attention. That's where that would work. And it didn't work for him. So, hey, I guess we can take a break on the LP in this case. Paul, you bring up an interesting 
idea about how representative Tiger King has been seen as. Do you think that this documentary is good at representing either people in rural Oklahoma, rural communities in general, libertarians, the type of people that they cover? Do you think this is representative of people as outliers or is this more slice of life or is it somewhere in the middle and should we take it as such? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a good question. I I'm uncomfortable. I mean I enjoyed the show thoroughly. It's it's well put together, but there is something um that in photography and other kind of media studies uh folks refer to as the uh, as gaze. Uh, like the the photographer's gaze, what he can see and what he chooses to let you see the person who he's showing the photograph to. In this case, the filmmaker, the filmmaker's gaze is uh, apparent. And I think as you start thinking about what they're doing in this show, it, it gets a little bit it gets problematic. Um the the thing that makes Tiger King so interesting is precisely how outlandish their behavior, and, and by there I mean almost everybody in the show, uh, really gets. I mean it's 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 a larger than life story, and that's why it attracts our interest and attracted the filmmaker in the first place. This is not what he and she, the the two filmmakers, uh, intended for this documentary to be about. It was supposed to be about the illegal. Uh, trade in exotic animals and he references that at the beginning of the series and then it became this interpersonal soap opera i mean more than a soap opera um stuff that's stranger than fiction uh but as part of that gaze is that it is very much like ooh, look at the weirdo over there and and it's not unlike a carnival it's not unlike a zoo itself like you go to a zoo to see strange and wonderful animals to some extent. And there's always that tension at real zoos between people want to see clever, cool animals doing interesting stuff, but the zoo also want to, to educate the people who come to see the exotic stuff. There's that constant tension at any kind of zoo you visit, but you can see that tension in this documentary. In theory, there's supposed to be a didactic purpose, something we're supposed to learn here about the exotic animal trade, about this real life drama. Um, but there is a very strong element the director is like, look at those weirdos. And I think that's unfortunate because where that shows up is um, often a disinterest in figuring out why these people are the way they are. I mean, there's lip service paid to it. Like we get a very brief like Joe Exotic had a brother and Joe he grew up here. Carol Baskin grew up here, but it's quick. We're talking about a couple minutes out of the many hours of the show. It's not an attempt to understand these people, to humanize them. Uh, it is a chance to marvel at how weird and unlike us they are. It, it tickles it tickles our ears. It tickles our fancy that like, oh, uh, at least I'm not like these crazy wackos. And, and the show leans into that. There's always going to be an element of that in any kind of – I mean these people did do outlandish things. But the directors don't attempt to, to show us the kind of human beings and how they – uh, how their actions made sense to them, given their their setting, given their backgrounds, um, they didn't try to help us inhabit their points of view. They just wanted us to point at the, you know, at the, it's you know, it's like a carnival atmosphere. Point at the bearded lady. Look how silly she looks. I mean that it's that kind of attitude. Um, and and I, I do wonder. I'm not 
I'm not an expert in uh, exotic the exotic animal trade, but I do wonder that of all the like apparently there are you know a couple hundred these roadside zoos all around the country, how representative this handful Baskin exotic Doc Antle are they truly the norm or did we find the freakiest outliers and we're painting this entire community with a with a um, with a with a radical brush, if you will. And so, those are my two concerns. I think we've got some directorial exhibitionism going on here, and uh, I'm not necessarily convinced that Joe Exotic is the median big cat owner. I also share um, some similar concerns about how accurately this portrays like roadside zoos in general. I personally have never been to a roadside zoo, and I don't know a lot about their business models because some are like Carol Baskins are nonprofits, which would be a little bit different. But my big concern, and then I found through researching about the show, is the filmmakers painted this show to everyone involved, similar to Blackfish, in the sense that they were going to do this like expose of how tigers are treated. And I think when the directors went in, they found they had like a gold mine that was more like reality TV than it was about the animals. Because I think when you come back and you reassess the way the show, not only the progression of the show, the way the show ends up, it's much more about the humans involved than it is about the animals. There is some, obviously the animals is like what brings these humans together and causes their fights and whatnot. But I do think that it's more like, Focusing like, for lack of a better word on what Paul said, focusing on like on the weirdos, because that's like almost making it like reality TV. Almost there's a very fine line between it being like fact finding documentary and like a reality TV crime type show. And I think makers of the show and the producers of the show didn't necessarily intend for that to be the case. But once they were in there, they quickly realized how big this show could be if they really honed in on how how weird these people are. Um, so I think they really accentuated that to their to their ends. I think one of the best descriptions I've heard of Tiger King so far was a comment somebody left, which said it's it's like if a Coen Brothers film was a documentary. <laughs> um, <laughs> it has it definitely has that gawking at these outlandish characters vibe to it. There's not a whole lot. Of, I mean, I agree. There's not a whole lot of imagine yourself in this person's scenario. Um because it's not easy for most people to imagine doing or behaving anything like these people. Um, and there, there seems to be a very, uh, you know, on the surface, the question is, you know, kind of the initial source of the conflict between Joe exotic and Carol Baskin is over this question of animal cruelty. And is, you know, is this animal cruelty and for libertarians does government, have a role in preventing and kind of banning animal cruelty. And so, um, but that all gets lost very quick. And partly it's because you, they delve into the weirdness of the individuals and that becomes the real meat of the story is, you know, all these crazy people in this little community. Um, but also part of it was, cause I felt like the filmmakers kind of came away with, if they had a message about that at all, it was that everybody here is a hypocrite. Joe Exotic was initially against breeding, and they show old clips of how Carol Baskin was initially for breeding and did it, and there's all the self-interest tied up in it, and they get caught up in their personal feuds. So 
it ends up not really, not only does it not much examine the question of animal cruelty, they don't really show a whole lot of, um, you know, I was worried that there would be, I hate, you know, I, I would be cringing and turning away at scenes of tigers being mistreated or something. And you don't really get much of that. Um, they don't even dwell much on the five tigers that Joe Exotic was uh, convicted of killing. Um, you know, he would say euthanizing, whether or not it was justified, was it, uh, we don't really even get the details on why he killed these five tigers or what, what was up with that. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of, I do lean towards there being a legitimate government purpose in prohibiting outrageous animal cruelty. You know, if somebody's torturing their dog, I don't mind the cops going and taking the dog away. Um, but I, I, I was left uncertain about whether or not all these private zoos and the rest of it are, are really cruelty and if, if they're where they fall on that line. And you're right also that we don't know how representative these examples are. It got portrayed as fairly representative, at least in the terms of the business model and the practices. Um, but, the, you know, there are hundreds of these things and we have we have no idea. These might just be like the fringe craziest worst ones or who knows. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to agree with you, Andy, which is that I, I did not see anything in the show, um, anything like I was kind of expecting to going into it. <clears throat> I was expecting it. You know, I, I guess I've been primed by seeing like YouTube videos of, you know, PETA undercover videos of force feeding geese and I don't know, animal cruelty uh, videos. I was expecting, even if that wasn't going to be the point, I knew that going in that it was more about the humans rather than the animals. Um, I, I I was expecting to see a little bit more. Not, very little that I saw looked like animal cruelty for its own sake. I, I, I suppose that one stance on that's going to come down to whether or not you think that tiger ownership or big cat ownership in and of itself uh, is inherently cruel or not. Uh, I don't tend to think so. I mean, if, if you think that wild animals should always live in the wild and should never be held in captivity, period, well, then just the very – the mere fact that there's a documentary that could be made about the private ownership of animals it, is it enough proof of cruelty for you. Um, I don't necessarily – I don't share that assumption. I don't think zoos are unethical. I actually think they can do a lot of good Um both for conservationist reasons, for awareness raising, for fundraising. Um, and uh, so on that spectrum, I think this belongs somewhere in the, the realm of potentially, you know, potentially ethically okay. Now, that doesn't mean just because there's nothing inherently unethical about uh, owning a tiger uh, or displaying a tiger or keeping a tiger in captivity doesn't mean that it's necessarily so. I mean, if he is... Um, uh, there's a scene there or there's a section there where they talk about how they were underfeeding the tigers because they're running out of money. Well, that's, you know, if you're starving tigers, that's, that's cruel. Um, or taking, you know, um, cycling through them and shooting them when they're inconvenient to you. So you can make an art, even if it's not inherently cruel to own tigers, it can be cruel in how you do own them. And I think that you could, you could make an argument for that from this, from this piece. Um, I mean, it is complicated though. I, I, I don't know. The show doesn't delve into this, so that's that's part of the problem. But what counts as tiger cruelty? The mere – does putting them in a cage, uh, does holding them in captivity where they're not free to roam, is that fundamentally cruel? 
or is the fact that they when they're out in the wild they have shortened quality of life shorter life expectancy uh, a wild tiger only lives 10 to 15 years on average in the wild they live 16 to 20 in captivity so they have a quarter more higher life expectancy uh, when they die in the wild usually they get injured and they can't hunt and they starve to death so that itself is cr- i mean so there's a kind of a nature red in tooth and claw angle here and so even if we think it's suboptimal that these animals are living in captivity, uh, that might be from our perspective rather than from the tiger's perspective. Uh, and and who knows? So, so I don't know who gets to make that decision. Should we, should lawmakers, should zoos, uh, accredited zoos versus roadside zoos, should animals rights activists, should Congress? I don't know. Um, so I, but again, the show doesn't really try to answer that question. So I'm kind of left uh, left with more questions and answers after watching it. If anything, the show makes it a bit more murky about like what is and isn't cruel because there's obviously the tension between Carol Baskin and Joe Exotic because they have very different visions of what is and isn't cruel for the tigers. And obviously they're going at each other and trying to put uh, – send visitors to take pictures of how each other is treating tigers and they're arguing whether or not breeding tigers is okay. I think if anything, this show, um, in terms of cruelty that it showed, I was kind of expecting it to be more down the line of like another Netflix documentary called don't F with cats. And I was like expecting it to be more, not quite as gruesome as that show. Cause there were quite a few times at that show I had to like look away and it was very disturbing, but I thought that was more the angle it was going to take. And there weren't any scenes like that at all, from my opinion. And I know that there was one at one point in the show that Carol Baskin was um, saying that Joe going around to the malls and letting people take photos with the tigers was cruel. And I think she used that like exact quote that um, take allowing people to take selfies with the tiger was cruel because it was perpetuating how the tigers are being treated. I didn't necessarily view that as cruel. Did I think that was a little like kind of sketchy and like, eh, like when I go see a tiger in a mall, probably not just like, I probably wouldn't go see a tiger that's been kept in a small cage for the circus, but I didn't necessarily see anything that was outlandish. And I think they both had arguments as to why the other, um, roadside zoo owner or big cat owner was being cruel um so i kind of had a question to open up to everyone is who was worse in your opinion was carol baskin worse or was joe exotic because we saw multiple not only in their personal lives but we saw multiple times where one could argue that they were treating their tigers or they were mistreating their tigers i'm not sure which one i feel was treating the tigers worse they it was very ambiguous uh with the evidence presented and the charges back and forth um one thing that you know of course as this all goes on it escalates from the charges of of animal cruelty back and forth to lawsuits and then ultimately criminal charges um i was not sympathetic to carol baskin's uh defamation lawsuit um I, I was struck thinking of, um, uh, you know, one of the things I agree with Murray Rothbard about is I, I take a very skeptical glance of whether defamation law is worth having at all. Um, and this seemed like, I mean, yeah, the things he did were outlandish. Um, and the, the social media following they both cultivated was weird and cultish. And he did things like shoot a blow up doll that he dressed up to look like her and did all these trash-talking videos back and forth. Um, 
But in a sense, this was, you know, at least all ostensibly tied to a matter of public controversy. They were debating what the law should be. They were she was making accusations against him. Um, And so, you know, when it eventually spiraled out of control into this maybe murder for hire, maybe not. I mean, (laughs) we maybe talk about how people (laughs) feel about those charges. Um, But the reason it got to that point was this lawsuit where Baskin had been awarded like a million dollars in damages and was trying to retake all his property. And uh, uh, that was that's where I was most sympathetic to. I felt like Joe Exotic is kind of getting screwed here and none of the you know his youtube videos joking about her killing her husband or saying she doesn't do a good job running her cat sanctuary or whatever uh should not have resulted in in legal damages like that and all the rest that followed from it uh to andy's point like uh and uh your mention of uh don't f with cats uh natalie it's it's instructive that um it almost I, I would argue it has the inverse message of Don't F with Cats, uh, which is a show about the power of like internet community of the very online to pursue mob justice when uh the law, when the formal law can't do it or fails to do it on its own. So it's like the power of the internet to pursue justice on the behalf of cats and you know, in this case and well and they catch a serial killer or help. Um this is, in a sense, it's the same kind of basic theme, which is the power embedded in there, especially with Carol Baskin, the power of the internet um, to excite interest, to uh, um, arouse uh, anger over injustice. Uh, but in this case, it doesn't appear to have anything to do with um, actual extracting justice or doing something that the – I mean, so, so Carol Baskin has a very large social media uh, follow following that she uses to go after Joe and arguably does kind of equally defamatory things, albeit less, um, you know, like not taking a gun and shooting a blow up doll of, of Joe exotic. That's, that's him, but he's also doing that for, for an audience, right? He's doing it for his self taped um, internet show uh, that, you know, there's aspirations of turning it into a cable TV show, but it's just initially for the internet. So they both are appealing to kind of the, what we would call the, um, internet mob justice. He, uh, uh, rallying folks to take on this hypocrite, Carol Baskin, her rallying folks to take on this, you know, uh, animal abusing Joe exotic. So they're both trying to harness the internet mob, um, to punish their rival, uh, and I'm not sure either one of them – the irony is I'm not sure either one of them – they both kind of fall foul of the don't F with cats thing, uh, it, it, depending on your perspective. If, if holding cats in captivity is a problem, then both of them are effing with cats, and yet they're using the internet mob to take on their uh, business competitors. One thing that I was thinking of as this discussion was sort of happening is so far we've discussed the sort of flaws and framing that the filmmakers used when creating and producing Tiger King and how that sort of skews the gaze of the people that it is trying to represent, as well as the flaws and morality of the people that it is covering, namely Carol and Joe. But one thing that, Paul, you were starting to get at, and you kind of mentioned, but that neither the film nor us have really, really begun to scratch the surface of, is 
the morality inherent in viewing this type of story as an entertainment piece. Like you said, there's inherently or there is supposed to be or an attempt, a hope that there is a didactic purpose to a story like this, that we should learn something from the murder, madness and mayhem that is Joe Exotic and Carol Baskin's feud over the years. But a lot of people, uh, like initially, there was, you know, this big social media sort of rally around the show, like, oh, this is exactly what we need in this time. And then there was a bit of a backlash, I thought, as, you know, Carol Baskin came out and sort of gave her side of the story about how it was going to be portrayed. Um, there was a lot of people beginning to write a little bit more about the indulgent, uh, kind of self-serving nature of gawking at these people, like you were hinting at. Uh, Paul. Uh, in, for instance, uh, Kate Nibbs wrote for Wired uh, at the end of last month, Tiger King's moral repulsiveness remains central to its dark appeal. And I think we can sort of decide whether we think that moral repulsiveness is on behalf of the uh, subjects of the story or the people that are sort of observing it, us as audience members. Um, but she goes on to further say, to pierce the madness of the current moment, it needed sharp claws. So the madness of everyone being in a, a sort of shelter in place, a social distancing, quarantine-like scenario, um, th this type of story is the kind of thing that could get through to people. It It's both indulgent, but also so dark that it cuts through everything. You also see its sort of counterpoint in that you're seeing both sort of a story like this, but also unabashedly positive content that is just trying to sort of give hope to people in a dark time. I, I've been seeing a lot of this uh, John Krasinski's sort of good news segment where he got the cast of Hamilton together to sing songs for this little girl. Uh, do you think that these types of like, polarized emotions and, and media are what's going to succeed in this cultural moment? And what do you make of that? Well, it's, I mean, it is. So what's interesting um, is that at the end of Don't F With Cats, the film, the documentarians, they turn their, the attention of the show to you. They break the fourth wall and say, hey, you've been marveling at how weird this situation is, kind of this grody, um, titillation of you know we're not going to show you the cat murder videos but we're going to kind of this you, you're, you can't look away and that is what the serial killer or the wannabe serial killer at the heart of that uh, documentary that is what he got off on was the idea that he could have this audience he started with cats and escalated to human beings because it was a way of building his online fame and notoriety that's why he did it and without an audience the, and this is what the documentarian is suggesting in, at the end of that uh, series. Without an audience, he wouldn't have had a reason to do that. Therefore, you, the viewer of this documentary, the fact that people like you couldn't look away, you clicked on the news stories about his crime spree, you uh, debated about him on the internet forums, and now you're watching this uh, Netflix documentary, you're part of the problem. And that's how that sh that series ended. This show has a similar question that they don't explicitly address. To what extent does this show 
And we, by indulging and, and talking, watching and sharing about it and talking it up, are we participating in um, what is on display, the various kind of crimes and misdemeanors? That, that's the question at the heart. I don't that, – that goes somewhat unaddressed, unlike in Don't F with Cats. Um, I actually don't agree with the premise, however. Um, and, and the reason why is that um, – is that so the the kind of skullduggery that is on display the the bad stuff involved the literal you know the possible crime for murder plot um though like andy i expressed some skepticism over whether it was real or not um or just entrapment uh the but in general just everyone being terrible to everyone else the hypocrisy the the sketchiness of black market sales i mean this was all you're not supposed to sell um, sell uh, uh, tigers in this manner, distribute them so they would pretend that they're donations. And so there's a lot of like underhanded, illicit activity going on. Um, in as much as we're participating in that, we can only participate in that because bad regulatory policy encouraged all this behavior. This behavior didn't happen from a clean slate. This is not some just like arising from the state of American nature, American society. We got Carol Baskin, Joe Exotic, and this duel between um, you know competing roadside zoos possessing big cats. It is an artifact of bad government policy and lax enforcement. So in as much as – I mean it, it would be as if um, – well, the, I'll continue with in this vein, which is that uh, we are um, in as much as there's criminal activity occurring on this show that we can't look away from that is bizarre. That criminal activity isn't happening because of us, the viewer. It's happening because of the incentive structure put in place by uh, governing authorities. And what I mean by that is we have a situation in which the government has made a set of demand, has made demand legal. That demand is for – um, access to tigers. Uh, apparently, I, this doesn't. This, I'm not a big tiger person, a big cat person. I'm not the kind of person who would pull over a roadside zoo just to look at tigers. But a lot of Americans are, and that's fine. That's legal. It is legal to be interested in tigers. It is it is legal to even pet tiger cubs. It is all, all of that? In, in fact, even the ownership of these tigers, not all tigers, but these tigers, which are known as generic tigers, there's a, like a little loophole in the law. These ownership of these tigers is okay, but what's not okay is the supply of those things. So we have legal demand being matched with the government saying, uh, 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 uh supplying that demand is illegal. The, distrib the distribution and sale of the tigers. Um, that is a classic problem. And, and if that, the, the, the corollary in American history is prohibition. So during prohibition, you have huge demand for a uh, uh for a good uh which is liquor you know so folks want to drink lots of demand for liquor and prohibition did not ban the consumption of liquor of alcohol that was still legal you can consume all the alcohol you wanted during prohibition what you could not do so you have legal demand but what prohibition did was it made the supply of that demand illegal um so you couldn't sell or distribute um or in it, or manufacture 
uh, alcohol in the United States during prohibition unless you got – again, there were legal loopholes just like there's a generic tiger loophole that these folks are taking advantage of up until 2016. There were exemptions to prohibition for the production of sacramental wine uh, and uh, medicinal wine. And so (laughs) suddenly there was a massive uh, uh, boom in sacramental wine production uh, during during prohibition. So again, and what that ends up doing when you match – legal demand and illegal supply uh the you've just created rules that encourage the market to go underground encourages it to go from above board uh open uh easily to regulate easy to over to provide oversight by governing authorities uh and it shoves it underground where it's harder to regulate either through the market and of course the market disciplines bad actors through reputational hits uh bad pr if you sell if you do bad things on the market but black markets you don't have the market-based discipline and in the black market it's below the site of authorities it's harder to track down it's harder to regulate harder to control so that was true in prohibition uh and that's what happened you have the black market in the production and distribution and sale of, of liquor that attracts organized crime so rather than good actors, good faith, above board, legal actors pr- producing alcohol like they did prior to prohibition, suddenly that production is goes into illicit criminal hands and encourages the production of, you know, illicit supply chains um, of, of, you know, a, kind of turns it into a criminal enterprise. You can see that going on in this show as well. You have, in fact, Joe Exotic himself is an above board good actor at the, you know, at the beginning of his career. Um, but over the course of the show, he starts getting involved in criminal activities and fraud in illegal sales. You can see his kind of trajectory into I mean, maybe not organized crime on the scale of Al Capone, but organized. I mean, uh, Jeff Lowe is a sketchy, shady criminal, and he gets in bed with with again. So you have this organized crime element starting to creep in into this community. So just like that, that worked in prohibition. You can see it on display here in, um, in tiger King, and you should expect that the way supply and demand and economics works, um, you should expect that to happen. So that's that's why I don't like beat myself up too much about enjoying this or watching and enjoying the show is because it's not we who created this problem. It's bad government policy that created the incentives that led to this particular situation. There are also um, two kind of points that I resonated with there, Paul. One, I think the show did a good job of kind of highlighting and acknowledging or at least made us hyper aware of that this black market exists. Because when I first started watching the show, I was like questioning, I was like, is it legal to own big cats as pets? Or what is it? And then I actually I, I personally Googled it. And then later when I was doing research, actually, the number one question on Google from like a week and a half ago when the show was more in its a height, it came out March 20th, and today's April 8th. But the number one question Googled was, is it legal to own tigers as pets? Um, so clearly, I mean, yes, we're living in unprecedented times in the sense that people have um, more free time, they're stuck at home, they're not going outside, they're not doing their usual social gatherings or things of that nature um, because of the uh, because of the p- pandemic going on, which I also would bring me to my second point that I think this show 
would not have been, mind you, this is all speculation, but the show would have not have been as successful had it not been released during this time period. And I have, I have kind of a few reasons why that might be. Me personally, I don't necessarily uh, note out that much time for new shows. I follow a lot of my similar shows, but this show got a lot of hype, not necessarily when it first came out, but to, it was about four to five days later, once people had watched the entirety of the show, and then there, then people obviously went crazy and it was trending on Twitter and what have you. But I think during this particular time period in our lives was kind of, which Netflix couldn't have predicted. Um, they had Tiger King being released in this time period for quite some time now. Um, but I think they really hit on a note where people, one, were looking for like darker material, and this is certainly dark, and two, had the time to watch other things that they may not have otherwise. Um, and that's why I think partially why the show was so successful. I still think it would have got garnered quite the viewership, but I don't think it would have gotten quite as much hype and um, notice had it been released during a different time when other movies were coming out, other new TV shows, pretty much there, there's a halt on pretty much every new movie that's coming out. They've been either delayed or um, their recording and filming has been delayed. Um, so there's been specific height on new things released in this time period that we probably otherwise wouldn't have noticed. Um, I don't know if other people feel that way, but I think that they got more hype from being released during this time period rather than less. I think that's right. I mean, definitely. I saw uh, somebody uh, post a meme that was 14 days without or day 14 without sports. I'm watching a gay zookeeper seduce his husbands with meth. Um, <laughs> so, you know, there's certainly been, yeah, it fell into this in this vacuum of new cultural stuff and a lot of people's attention that otherwise would have gone to other new things coming out or sports or what have you um has instead kind of you know it struck this moment um and i think there's uh on that on that corner of criticism of the viewer that struck me as similar to a strain of elite criticism of pop culture that we see a lot of which is oh the you know the the unwashed masses and their high demand for trash like this it's why you get jerry springer or you see it in another context aimed at mcdonald's or walmart a lot of the time um and i don't i don't really go for that as much for one thing i think uh, paul is right that the policy failures produced the story it wasn't the demand for netflix documentaries that produced all of what joe exotic and the rest did um but, you know, there's also part of me that just says, hey, this is a weird story. These are people who all voluntarily, for whatever self-interested publicity-seeking reasons they had, everybody who was interviewed for this series did so voluntarily and wanted to be famous. You know, we certainly, Joe and Carol and several of the others, wanted to be famous. Um, and the people who are watching it are enjoying it. They're getting a laugh out of you know, just kind of a weird slice of humanity type story. Um, you know, he, hey, here's these crazy people uh, doing weird stuff and it's helping to pass the time and it's providing entertainment value. Um, so I don't, uh, you know, I definitely kind of would defend that and say there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Um, people want their entertainment and this is filling the need for their entertainment and so long as it's all, you know, voluntary interactions. And if you don't like it, don't watch it. Um, 
I think that should be, that's kind of more my attitude about it. I don't, I don't go for the, you know, somebody in the New Yorker or the Atlantic um, poo-pooing the trashy tastes of the masses. I saw someone describe this show as, uh, and I put in quotes, so American. Why do you think they describe that show in that way? Do you think it represents like rural America at all? Like I, I don't see it being a definition of America, but I was kind of wondering what you all thought. I think it's important to note uh, one th- and I think that both Andy and Paul sort of hit on this and I think it's important is so far as I can tell a lot of the criticism especially what we were hinting at was we inherently sort of assume that these people are sort of critiquing uh, you know what we would probably you know consider or or use the term of something like coastal elites gawking at rural Amer- Americans at that point but right. so far as I can tell I haven't seen any you know research or statistics about who is consuming Tiger King relative to income or the place that they live. So as far as we know, I mean, my family's from Texas, just a couple hours south of where uh, Winniewood, Oklahoma is, and they loved it just as much as I did and said like, oh yeah, there's people like that that we know. And there's my cousin who lives in an even smaller town in Texas, uh, really enjoyed the show, but he texted me and was like, you got to talk about this. Um, And I have, you know, sort of my own thoughts about how rural uh, America are portrayed. So I, I think it is a little presumptuous of people to assume, as, as Andy noted, that it, it's sort of this, um, you know, gawking, uh, inherently sort of mocking view viewership of these kind of people. Um, but I think what Natalie was sort of hinting at, um, it, it was just kind of interesting because you immediately said rural Americans. I do think that there is something... I don't know if it's inherently American because I think that's it. It's a little, uh, you know, American exceptionalist to think that, you know, liberty and freedom is an inherently American idea when in reality, those ideas have been around and are far more globalized than than we ever um, sort of presume them to be in many ways. Um, but there is a sort of an American flavor to the way people like Joe or uh, some of the other tiger keepers in the show do talk about their right to own these tigers and these big cats and everything. Yeah, I, I think when I, when I think about it as um, kind of an exhibitionist gaze, it, it's not so much the coastal elite thing. Though you can make the argument for it, not based on who's consuming it, but like most of the critiques are coming from – I mean, who's who's writing for Wired? It's not someone in Winniewood uh, who's writing for The Atlantic or for The New Yorker or Slate or any of these pieces that are that have done like think pieces uh, on the on the topic. So, but that's because our you know our media elites tend to be clustered in a handful of of locations that aren't Central uh, Oklahoma. Um, but what I mean by that is uh, that. And, and whether it's not, it's a kind of gawking at Americana, and there can be a, a degree of that, like, you know, someone in New York City being like, oh, these crazy rednecks out there. I mean, you could you could argue that there's a hint of that, or you could argue against that. I, 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 I could be persuaded either way. But it's more that the directors aren't interested. Again, it's that it's that they're not interested in humanizing these actors. So for example, take Joe Exotic's sexuality, right? So he is he's a gay man who has 
at least two long-term relationships. He marries two straight men, um, at least one of whom he uh, – self-described straight men, uh, at least one of whom uh, he keeps with him by keeping him addicted – being his drug supplier, supplying him with drugs. Like – so there are layers of like – I mean you could talk about what opioid addiction and drug addiction is like in America. You could talk about what it's like to to be a gay man in a, in a country that during Joe Exotic's youth certainly wasn't accepting of, of, of gayness and, um, and especially, you know, particularly not I, – I imagine central Oklahoma by comparison to uh, other, other locations. And they, they pay a little bit of lip service to that. They talk about how he drives – he drove his car what, off a bridge and that's where he gets his limp from. Uh, but they don't, they don't really dig in and give you any kind of analysis of what's going on there. But like you know that's got to be huge. Whether or not Joe Exotic – how much he's willing to talk about that, I don't know. Maybe the directors weren't, weren't able to get him to speak about it, though it somewhat beggars the mo- – beggar's belief that he they couldn't get him to speak about he seems willing to speak about anything right <laughs> you just ask him but like <laughs> dig into that more like to what extent did his experience growing up as a closeted gay man man and now running a zoo in a very conservative state like what role does that play in 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 his you know his identity as someone who um, is a is an outsider, someone who's willing to take on authorities. Like again, all that kind of goes unexamined. The simple fact of his gayness is frequently noted. So a lot of the pieces, you know, tweets and articles are all like, or even uh, in the show they show a. I think it was a Colbert clip, or no, I mean, it was. Um, I think it was Colbert. Was it Colbert? Who, There's Colbert and John Oliver. and John Oliver yeah. being like, I mean, they always mention gay zookeeper in Oklahoma and. Yada yada. So the 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 fact of his gayness is always mentioned, but the meaning of his gayness, like what it is like to be a gay man in that situation, is completely unexamined or almost completely unexamined. Which would annoy me if I if I were gay. Like like th- that's just dropped as a category of analysis. So that is how it's exhibitionist in my mind. That's one example of it. Again, you could do the other thing with like you know they they nod towards the fact that. All like a lot of the workers at the zoo and Joe Exotic himself. I mean, why do you think he sniffs? The dude's got a drug habit. Um, his his exes ha- or his husbands have, um, you know, self described drug habits. Like, um, this like so there's drug use constantly. This is a window into like a particular set of American subcultures. And it is noted but never analyzed. And that's why it's – that's how it's exhibitionist. Like look at that weird thing. Aren't you thankful you don't do meth is the implicit is – the, is the kind of tacit unsaid thing um, uh, about a lot of these issues. So it's it's more of that though. You know, I'm not going to rule out that there's – I'm sure you know listeners uh, or watchers are going to bring to it what they want to bring to it. The a filmmaker can't always control that. I, I remember once I went and saw um, – uh, uh, the Heath Ledger Batman movie was that Dark Knight Rises. That was Dark Knight. Dark Knight. Dark Knight. And he, he, I'm in the theater. It's in Philly, packed house, like opening night. And clearly, the filmmaker that scene where the the uh, Joker, where Heath Ledger uh, does the disappearing trick with a pencil and it disappears up the the, the hoodlum's eye, the again you know, the criminal's eye. Um, that's clearly meant to be like, oh, right. The theater erupted in laughter they thought it was the funniest thing they'd ever seen and like that's clear so there's always a disjuncture between what the filmmaker intends and what the audience takes from it and there's only so much you can control with that 
But um, in this case, uh, I think there was a degree to which directors are like, fine, we're just going to lean into this, not try to help the listeners understand it or humanize the actors. Um, to, to your earlier question, Landry, I'll, end with, I'll stop with this. Um, who do I think is most sympathetic? I don't really much care for either Baskin or Joe or Doc Antle or, or, you know, or, or Jeff Lowe. He's probably the worst of the bunch. Um, they're all pretty despicable in their own ways. And they all, and, and the filmmakers are very clever at getting them to expose each other's hypocrisies. The thing that they'll interview one who will allege this thing about the next, and then the next will expose the next, the next will expose. It's just this circle of uh, exposed hypocrisy. The people who I think come out looking the best are the poor workers, like the the various amputees who work at the zoos. Like they they're, they they are. Um, and here's the here's this is an interesting angle, which is that you have these rescued tigers, ostensibly, uh, rescued tigers who are are undervalued by society, and these um, zoos uh, or sanctuaries take them in to to provide you know to provide them with with uh, a second chance at life. Well, in a sense, the zoo workers are operating the same way. A lot of them have talk about their 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 social problems, their drug problems, uh, problems with the law, and how Joe Exotic or whoever gave them a second chance. So they're they're the ones who I'm sympathetic to, and they they have more common sense among them uh, uh, than any of the actual zoo owners appear to. Yeah, and I think the show does a pretty good job towards the end of giving them a little bit more screen time, yeah. uh, specifically once the case is winding down and sentencing happens, that we finally get uh, – like I, I kind of wish we would have gotten a little bit more of their view. Like they, they're featured throughout, but we don't get like a real focus until the very end. Yeah. And I think if we would gotten a, a little more sense of that journey, I, I would have appreciated it a little bit more. But I, I definitely agree with you there, Paul. And I'll just add, uh, uh, definitely on the cultural angle. Um, you know, I, I'm, I grew up in Arkansas and I'm gay. Um, and I was expecting that they definitely did kind of, I agree. They gawked at that and made it, uh, something they always mentioned. Oh, ha ha. He's gay, but they did not explore, um, some archetypes that were recognizable. And I've seen some commentary, uh, to this effect from, um, uh, gay writers and people who kind of cover that beat of, um, you know, this is a case of the closet kind of driving somebody to the fringes and, uh, certainly into drug addiction, um, into these very unorthodox and arguably pretty unhealthy, uh, relationships. Um, you know, I mean, Joe's husbands are, are 30 years his, his junior. Um, and you know, his last one, I think is 19 when he married, you know, he marries them and then shortly thereafter goes to jail. And there's the drug addiction angle that fuels into the, all that. Um, and so that that was very recognizable um, to people who've who've come up in that experience. But it didn't touch on that. It didn't it didn't explore. I don't think it hardly even mentioned, except maybe in passing, um, that this was a very religious conservative area. It didn't focus on on that. It didn't have scenes of, um, you know, this was not like a boy erased or something like that, exploring homophobia and religion in the South. Um, it was certainly portrayed as rural, but it didn't focus much on it being Oklahoma or it being the South or, uh, any of the broader cultural context. And in particular, what would have kind of driven Joe's development? Uh, it's a very cursory treatment of their backstory for all of them. And you, you particularly kind of feel that gap, uh, missing with, uh, in Joe's case. 
So while we all have a lot of ideas about what we can take away from and the merits of viewing this type of media, uh, and there's you know certainly a lot of nuance that goes on with that discussion, I think one area that we can all agree is worth diving into for just a little bit more is Joe Schreibvogel Maldonado Passage's amazing country music career oh yeah <laughs> um and I, I i i know we've all watched it and we've we've really dug deep into this show to try and get the most out of it but i want to see how deep you've dug so i've prepared a little game for everyone uh here's what i'm gonna do i'm gonna put two minutes on the clock and i am going to go through as many song titles as i can and you have to tell me whether it is a Joe Exotic song <laughs> or if it is by somebody else. Now you can oh, all gosh. you can all do this together. You can say Joe Exotic or Joe or other, and I'll let you know. All right. Two minutes on the clock, and here we go. Dance with the tiger. It's gotta be Joe. Yeah, that's our final answer. That's a Roseanne Cash song. Oh. <laughs> Tiger by the Tail. Oh, I think I've heard of that one before. I think that's, I don't think that's Joe Exotic. I think that's somebody else's. That's Buck Owens, correct. Guardians of Children. That can't be Joe Exotic. It is a Joe Exotic yeah. song. Oh, you're kidding. I was going to say, it's just <laughs> weird it is enough. About a, it is a biker gang song uh, dedicated to children, victims of abuse and misplacement. Oh, gosh. Uh, bring it on, parentheses. Please unite. Wow. Oh, gosh. Uh... Uh, I have no idea, but... It sounds like the title of one of those, like, celebrity, like, uh, they all get together and sing a song for charity. Um... Let's go with non-Joe, then. It is a Joe Exotic uh... <laughs> Tiger Bones. Joe Exotic. Nope, Joni Mitchell. <laughs> oh, darn it. <laughs> I'm <enough>. terrible. <laughs> Pretty Woman Lover. Uh, is Carol Baskin an option? <laughs> I, I, I'm going to say that sounds like Joe trying to do re- like something that you would think of as a regular country song. But yeah. You are correct. Hey! It's a Joe wow, Exotic Andy. song. Andy got you one are for great us. at this. <laughs> uh, hey, Joe. No, it can't be. No. no, no. Nope, that's a Jimi Hendrix. Uh, I saw a tiger. Definitely yeah, that's, Joe. That's him. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, that's they play that I in the show. I think they use that one. Yeah. yeah. Pads, paws, and claws. That sounds tiger specific enough that I'm going to go with Joe. That is correct. The friendly beasts. Non Joe. Yeah, that sounds correct. Like, yeah. it's Peter, Paul, and Mary. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Jungle Land. Sounds like some of a Disney soundtrack. Yeah, oh, it, it is a Bruce Springsteen oh, song. So uh, it's not Joe, so I'll give the it to Urban you. Jungle. All right. <laughs> yes. Uh, don't kill it, Carol. Oh, that's definitely oh, Joe. That's Joe. Yeah, that's Joe. Yeah. <laughs> nope, that's a song by Manfred Mann. Oh, <laughs> he tricked us. All right. Do you ever wonder what love can do? Joe, sure. That is a Joe yeah, Exotic yeah. song. <laughs> all right. Good job, everyone. What? Landry? Wonderful. No Eye of the Tiger? Yeah, come on, Landry. Oh, that, like that. That'd be too easy. You think I'm going to throw you a bone like that? Yeah, I did. Yeah. No way. A, a, a bone, an expired bone uh, from Walmart. Oh, right. Oh, it's yes. on the Off Walmart the truck. <laughs> and now we come to the part of the show where we get to explore what other media we are all consuming as of late. This is... Locked in. 
So, Paul and Andy, what are you currently locked into? Uh, well, I have not been actually watching a whole lot of new stuff. I've been in the mood for uh, comfort watching when I do have time to sit down in front of the TV. So, uh, I've been I've been on a little bit of a Coen Brothers uh, movies binge. You know, one of those ones you can sit through and and quote by heart because you've seen it a thousand times before. Um, uh, we've been throwing on for the same reason, just like Harry Potter, the 007 movies. Um, you know, it, it, in this time when we're all kind of stressed out and, uh, you know, when you're working from home all day, uh, when I sit down and watch TV, I, I've honestly not been in the mood for much new. It's, it's been something like that. It's something old and familiar and just kind of blob out for a little while to it. I am a, I'm a hardcore Cohen Stan, Cohen Brothers Stan. So, uh, what's your, do you have a favorite, Andy? Uh, my favorite is probably Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Oh, it's classic. Yeah, it's classic. Yeah. Can't Good go, choice. Can't go wrong with that. My favorite's a serious man, but like it, it's th- oh. their oeuvre is oh. so strong that like even their worst movies, like I don't know, Lady Killers is often listed as oh, yeah. is still better than most directors' best movies. So, you know. I can't do a serious man. It bums me out oh, too much. Oh, it's a huge bummer, but man, the, <laughs> the layers of meaning, uh, it's it's rich. Uh but as far as I've been watching, um I actually completely sympathize with uh with Andy that like I want comfort food cultural comfort food right now so i've been uh well I'll recommend is something that uh i finally got around to watching the third season of but if you're looking for a netflix documentary that is it so just like how tiger king is a show you know if i told you like oh it's a fascinating drama about big cat big cats like unless you were a very discreet person like the, unless you had discreet interests in tigers and lions and the like you'd probably be like that doesn't sound interesting to me like what that's not a setting i care about but if you of course once you start watching it you're hooked um this is another show like that so you might think that what do i have to do with like junior college sports um like i don't watch sports i don't care about that at all give this show a try it's called last chance you and it's a documentary yeah it's a great show right now it's it's um and unlike Tiger, so it has just as much ups and downs and drama, no murder for hire plots or things like that. But in terms of the the human drama on display, it's riveting. Um, but it does a much better job of humanizing its characters. It like it, it you know, it'll show these football players at junior colleges across uh, the South, mostly in the U.S., um, their struggles and like their misbehavior, but then it goes and helps you see why they behave the way they do. It situates them, makes their behavior like it makes you think if I were in their shoes, I don't know. I'm not convinced I would necessarily behave all that differently. And so it's, yeah, it's a less of an exhibitionist gaze, uh, more humanizing. It's on Netflix. Go check it out. And the other thing I'll mention real briefly, my son, He's five years old. He loves um, playing Game Pass games on our Xbox. And he discovered a game that's been a bit of a indie darling, um, new to us, though, called Piku Niku. And you play as this little, like, blob with legs that goes around. And <laughs> he loves the fact that you can – it's all, like, kick-based. You kick things. You can kick flowers and kick stuff and kick people. And so uh, 
yeah, I'm not sure what I'm teaching him other than that you can solve many problems in life via <laughs> kicking, which I'm not sure is a great parenting win. But it's that's some very great t- homeschooling going on. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's it's a but it's a great little game, little indie darling, and uh, it's worth picking up, especially if you got kids. But hey, for the kid and all of us, check out Pikuniku. For me, I've just been um, I've been keeping up with Westworld. Uh, we already did an episode on it, and this new season is definitely keeping us on our toes. And that show has actually required me to do quite the homework uh, for the new season. But I think I understand what's going on, and I won't spoil it for anyone. But um, in addition to that, I just finished a new book called Where the Crowdads Sing. It's been on a lot of best-selling lists. Um, it's been in Reese Witherspoon's book club. Um and it was a, essentially a like a murder mystery type book that um, is about a young girl who was left alone um, in the marshes of North Carolina to like live out her life. And it's it's it was very interesting. It was a page turner. I probably finished it in like two three days. It was uh, r- right around four hundred pages. I really enjoyed that. So I'm looking for my next fiction novel. I'm hoping to get through a bunch, especially since I'm finding all this free time. I found that. Since I spend a lot of the day working at home on my screen, I'm having a tough time continuing to watch a screen at night. So reading has been a nice break from the screens. I have been, my comfort watch that I've been going back to so far has been uh, Arrested Development. Oh, Um, classic show. As you know, there is always money in the banana stand. So (laughs) I keep going back to it. Um, So that, that has been really, really nice. I have also found uh, I've been cooking a little bit more. Not media, but uh, I, I've I've been consuming a lot of home-cooked food that I've been making. Uh, I've made a lovely homemade fajita last night. Wow. Uh, got that Chili's-style sizzle kind of crackle going on a little bit. I made some bread. Uh, you can uh, uh, a little plug for Fit Foodie Finds, which is a website that my fiancé has... Uh, shown to me so if you're looking for consumables or something like that that are both healthy and fun to make uh check out that website i also have been oh gosh what was it that i watched um oh i also have caught up on a show that our uh, libertarianism.org editor aaron ross powell just loves called uh nailed it um, on Netflix. <laughs> so make sure to tweet at him that uh, you appreciate how much he loves that show. Nailed it. Because um, I think he would really, really appreciate it. He loves to talk about it so much. Uh, so I've been catching up on that as well. Thanks for listening. Since we recorded this episode, much has happened in the world of big cats. They've released an additional episode to the show. And Joe Exotic has asked President Trump for a pardon to get out of prison. Do you think Joe Exotic should receive a pardon? Let us know on Twitter at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock with an E, Pod. Make sure to subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by Landry Ayers as a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.